0: Well, good morning. It is good to worship with you. Uh, baptism Sundays are always fun when I'm the one doing the baptizing because it's like run all the way around and change and dry off and, and hit it just as we get ready for uh, the sermon. So I'm, I'm really uh, thankful that we made it today. So um, here's the deal. Uh, we're launching a series that we call PLANT. Now, if you've been around East Side for a few months, you know that uh, about 30 days ago, we began a PLANT initiative, which is an opportunity for us to learn what it means individually and in groups, corporately, to, to find out um, kind of how we develop this connection with God through Jesus Christ. And the word plant was chosen because it's in an acronym. That's what churches do, right? And so it stands for prepare. The P in it is for prepare. The L is for lean into God's Word. And then the A is analyze that word in terms of how it applies to your life. And then the N is for next steps. What is the next thing you're going to do because of what you've learned? And then the T is for taking that and going out and doing something with it in your life. And so uh, today, uh, as we're entering the last half of that 60-day emphasis, we're gonna do a series that starts today and runs through um, the Sunday after Thanksgiving. And, and so this morning, we're gonna start with this word, prepare. Well, what, what does it mean to prepare? Uh, what does it mean to prepare your heart? Um, and, and there's a story, again, this entire series uh, of this initiative is, is a really a walk through the Gospel of John. And now that we've been in it for 30 days, we're at the place where um, we're in John chapter seven, John chapter eight, and there are some things that happen in this, in this part of scripture that if you don't know the historic context, you won't understand what the meaning is for the people in that day and for us in this day. And so I need to tell you a little bit about what's going on. Because you see, there's a difference in being permanently changed and being temporarily changed. Um, Some people are temporarily changed. They decide that they're going to follow the rules, they're gonna obey all the commandments, they're gonna put their best effort and they're gonna work really, really hard, and they're gonna just like follow the religious systems and they think that will change them. But the bottom line is, changed lives are only really changed when there are changed hearts. When, when hearts are changed, then behaviors follow. But when behaviors change, they will temporarily do, do that, but not permanently. And it's important to know the difference between permanent and temporary. Uh, I'm walking through that again in my life because I have granddaughters. Uh, we have a three-year-old granddaughter and an 18-month-old granddaughter. And things that I remembered long, long ago when I had little boys that were that age, they're still true today. For instance, for instance, you need to know the difference between a permanent marker and a temporary marker. Uh, Because if it's a permanent marker, it's gonna be there for a while. And uh, last weekend, uh, I was away uh, with my family, uh, and Becky and I took our granddaughters um, and took them and stayed overnight in a hotel, the four of us in a room. Uh, and uh, obviously, if you're gonna be overnight in a hotel, and yes, there was a swimming pool and there was pizza involved, and I'm trying to be the world's greatest grandfather, right? And, uh, and, and all that's involved. Then uh, somewhere along the line, there is that moment where you say, just color. Okay, just con- And here's what I know. If you don't know the difference between a permanent marker and a temporary marker, you're going to end up with something permanent on a couch in a hotel. I'm just saying, okay. Um, if, if anybody in Kankakee, Illinois at the uh, Hampton Inn is watching this, I will pay you whatever you bill me, okay. Uh, but, but just let you know that, uh, that, 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 that that difference between permanent and temporary is essential. And so what's going on in John chapter 7 and John chapter 8 is that there's something called the, 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 the um, Feast of the Booths or the Feast of the Tabernacles. And what it is, is a, a way in which the children of Israel, the Jewish people, would remember the time that you just sang about a few months ago, where in the middle of the wilderness... In spite of their disobedience, you remember, they wandered 40 years in a desert, in a wilderness, because when they got to the river that was between them and the promised land, they sent 12 spies over to see what was going to happen. And two of the spies came back, a guy named Joshua, a guy named Caleb. And they said, man, if God's with us, we can do this. But the other 10 came back and said, are you kidding me? There are giants over there, all right? These people, the cities are fortified. There is no way. We don't have the the equipment. We don't have the experience. We, We can't do that. And they convinced all the children of Israel that God wasn't big enough to handle their problem. And as a result, God said, fine. If you don't believe I can handle what's going on, then I'm just gonna let you try to do it on your own resources. So I'm gonna let you go for 40 years in the wilderness you just traveled, and you're gonna wander around in space you were intended just to cross over, but you're gonna stay there for a little while, for 40 years, until everybody who rebels dies. Now that sounds harsh, right? That sounds like, oh, wait a minute. What kind of God is that? Well, it's the kind of God who would let your choices determine the consequences of your life, but would also still love you. Because what this Feast of the Tabernacles or Feast of the Booths was about was the fact that in those 40 years, as you just sang, God provided manna from heaven, bread. God, God provided water actually from a rock. God even provided honey for them in that time frame and quail who fell from the sky God sustained them in the wilderness even though even though they would never see the promised land which tells me that God is a God who is loving is caring even when we rebel but it also tells me we have to know the difference between what's permanent and what's temporary because the wilderness was temporary for the people who were coming up in the next generation. They had to spend their first 40 years of their life living the consequences of someone else's decision. But then they ended up receiving the promised land and everything that went with it. And what, what Jesus is doing in John chapter 7 and John chapter 8 is he's coming into the city of Jerusalem during the Feast of the Booths when they would take a week. And by the way, uh, the, the, the Jewish nation still celebrates this year, this year, the Feast of the Booze, the Feast of the Tabernacles, was the last week of September into the first few days of October. It's a harvest festival every year. And so Jesus knows this is going on, and there's an interesting dialogue in John chapter 7 between Jesus and his brothers, where the brothers are... Uh, where the brothers look at him and say, hey, it's time for the Feast of the Tabernacles. Are you coming up with us? You need to come up there. You're doing these things out here in the countryside where nobody knows you, but this is Jerusalem. We're gonna travel up there. You need to come with us. And, and when they did, he said, no, no, you guys going up. It's not my time yet. But then after they went up, instead of going and making a public spectacle of himself, Jesus goes up quietly. But then in the middle of the, of the Feast, In the middle of this week-long event, he begins to talk to the people and teach in the temple. And he begins to teach them about who God is and how much he loves them. And so what takes place is he stands up one night and says, I am the bread of life, just like the manna. And then he also says to them, hey, if anybody's thirsty, you come see me. And as a result, and then, then John tells us that, that during that time frame, there was this woman caught in adultery that, that they brought to him. And, and some of you know the story. See, the Old Testament law was that they were supposed to bring the man and the woman who were caught in adultery. But they didn't bring the man. They just brought the woman. And so Jesus uh, looks at them when they say, hey, You know, our our law, the Old Testament law tells us that we're supposed to stone this woman because we caught her in the act of adultery. And Jesus knew that it also said they were supposed to stone the man. (laughs) They were supposed to bring the man, but they didn't do that. And so Jesus looks at them and says, fine. Whichever one of you has no sin in your life, you throw the first stone. And one by one, they went away. And, And then he looks at the woman and says, you know what, where are the people who accused you? And she says, they're gone. And he says, okay, then I'm not gonna condemn you, but what I want you to do is this. I want you to go away permanently changed and sin no more. And then he gets to this understanding that everything he's teaching goes against the religious system these people are following. Even though he and his father invited Abraham into this relationship. And so he, he notices that, that there are all of these people who are saying they believe in him. And they say, you know what? We, Jesus, we believe you're the Messiah. Jesus, we believe you're the Christ. But Jesus has this way of looking through the words you say to the way you live. And so what Jesus says to them is, okay, you say you believe me, you affirm, you, are, you assent to, to what I'm saying, but let me ask you this. Do you believe in me? Because my friend, that's the difference in temporary and permanent. See, temporary means that I believe what Jesus said. Intellectually, I I can get it. But permanent means I'm connected to Jesus forever. Permanent means not that I believe Jesus and what he says, but it also means, it means, permanent means, I believe in Jesus and I live in relationship with him. some of you are looking at me and saying, hey, pastor, why why in the world would you say something like that? Because I see too many people in our world right now who claim the name of Christ and who live out things that do not represent who Christ is living in them. And so listen as I read from just a few verses in John chapter eight, I'll start at verse 31 because I want you to hear this what he said to them in the middle of a religious festival that was to celebrate what God had done. And where all these people are saying, hey, I believe you, I believe who you are, Jesus basically ups the responsibility. Listen to what he says. So Jesus said to the Jews who had believed him, if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples and you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. They answered him, we're offspring of Abraham. And have never been enslaved to anyone. How is it that you say you will become free? Jesus answered him. Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. The slave does not remain in the house forever. The son remains in the house forever. So if the son sets you free, you will be free indeed. I know that you are offspring of Abraham, yet you seek to kill me because my word finds no place in you. I speak of what I have seen with my father, and you do what you have heard from your father. Jesus is looking at these people, and I think looking at us in the 21st century and saying, listen, it's not enough for you to say you believe. It's, it's more important that you abide in me. Because here's what Jesus knows and he wants us to know. Changed lives require changed hearts and changed hearts are the result of abiding in Jesus. Uh, What do you mean pastor? Changed hearts are the result of abiding in Jesus. Well, when, when Jesus looks at these people and says, hey, listen, if you abide in me, if you abide in my word, look look at the way that that he says it for them. If you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples and you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. Now, how many of you have heard? show Show of hands on this one, okay? How many of you have heard that phrase? You will know the truth and the truth will set you free. Heard that one? Yeah. Okay. All right. So, so, I mean, it's on plaques, it's on statues. uh, It's been co-opted and it's taken completely out of the context of the way Jesus said it. Because when we say in our culture, you'll know the truth and the truth will set you free. It's like, you got to, you know, you've got to tell us the objective truth, but we're living in a culture right now that has no objectivity. Everything is subjective. You've got your truth. I've got my truth. And, and, and people just look at each other and say, well, you just do your thing. I'll do my thing. You don't have a right to tell me anything. I, I, you know, I wouldn't dare tell you anything. We're just going to coexist. We're just going to coexist, except for one thing. Jesus is the truth. And so what he's saying is, if you abide in my word and you're truly my disciples, he's saying, hey, there's a condition to this truth the only way you know truth is to know Jesus. The only way you will have truth that will set you free is to stay in connection with Jesus. Now, now here's the deal. When we read this and it says, if you abide in my word, for those of us who've gone to church, we can automatically hear people saying, this is the word of God. It is the word of God. I'm not arguing with that. It is the written word of God. But what I need to tell you is, that's not what Jesus is talking about. When Jesus says, if you abide in my word, he said it to a group of people, most of whom did not read. And what Jesus was saying to them is this. I am the word. You remember, remember those of you who've read, first, or read chapter one of John? If you're doing the plant series, those first, few, those first few days, when it's talking about the creation of the world, and it starts, I mean, this whole gospel starts out with what? In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God and the word was God. So what Jesus is saying to you is not, did you win the scripture verse memory contest in Sunday school? He's not saying, do you know the Bible from cover to cover and can you quote all these memory verses? That's not what he's saying. When he says, if you abide in my word, what he's saying is, if you abide in what I'm teaching you, if you abide in who I am, if you have a connection with me, that, that, that is how you are known as truly my disciples. Because see, if you just limit it to to the Bible itself, which is the written word of God, then you miss the spoken word of God. You you miss the incarnate word of God. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. If you just limit it to the memory verses you know, you end up missing the life that you have. And what what Jesus is saying is, look, I want you to abide in me. That, That word abide means to rest. It means to stay connected. It means to, to find your source of life in this connection with Jesus and who he is. Uh, some of you have heard me tell this story. In fact, for those of you who keep count, I'm going to tell you two stories today that I've already told you before, and you have to listen to them, okay? Because the meaning is still the same. I had a young man tell me one time, well, my, my daddy keeps a count of every time you tell a story again, Pastor. And I looked at him and said, fine, you tell your daddy that when he starts living the truth behind the stories, I'll stop telling them. Until then, you're going to hear them again, all right? And you're going to hear this one and another one today because of the truth they have connected to this passage, not because I couldn't find a better one, but because these are really powerful in my life. See, one of those things was that I preached a funeral for a man in my first church. I'd been there 4 or 5 years. He was a man who honestly he would every Sunday come out and ask me some question. I I never wanted to play Bible trivia with this man. He knew, "Do you know how many left-handed archers are mentioned in the Bible?" I'm like, "What? <laughs> who cares whether they're right-handed or left-handed? I don't give a rip." All right? What do you mean? And then he would have, he'd always have, a, in the Wednesday night Bible study, he'd always have some off-the-wall question and this kind of thing. And, and then he passed away. He was, was in his late 80s. And he had six children, extremely successful children. I mean, very, very successful. A couple of them came to our church, but the others, some of them weren't involved in church at all. And after his funeral service, in fact, at the gravesite, after we've placed him in the ground, people are kind of mingling around a little bit. One of the one of the children that didn't go to our church eased up next to me and said, "Hey, hey, Reverend, do you uh, do you ever, do, do, do you ever like talk to people?" I said, "Yeah, every seven days, I stand up and talk to people." And he's like, "No, no, I don't mean like talk at people. I mean have conversation with people." And I said, "Well, sure." He said, "Can I stop by sometime at th- th- this funeral service and my dad's death?" I said, sure man, come on by. So he comes by a few weeks later, sits in my office and says, pastor, I just need to tell you something. There's a reason I don't go to church today. And there's a reason I have real hard questions about Christianity. Because you see, when we were kids, my father was a big believer in discipline. I'm like, oh, Was he like a spare the rod, spoil the child kind of guy? He said, oh, yeah, he was that way, but it was worse. I said, was he physically abusive? He said, well, that depends on your definition. It it was pretty close, pretty borderline. But but what I'm here to talk to you about today is that one of the things he did, because he believed that the Bible was the definitive everything. And if he could just get us to know the Bible, then we'd be all right. He said, and I learned some stuff from the Bible, and it's, it's okay. It's good. I'm thinking, I'm building my life around this book. What are you talking about? I'm building my life around the guy who inspired this book. What are you talking about? He goes, but, but you see, Pastor, it's kind of hard to embrace the Christian life and embrace the truth of Scripture. When your form of punishment as a child, whenever you did anything wrong and you're 8, 9, 10 years old, is, to, is for you to go to the basement of your house where your father has a chair that he's nailed pieces of rope and belts to. And he sets you in that chair, in that basement, with one light hanging right over your head, one of those little pull-down lights, and places an open Bible in your lap, open to a chapter, and says, your punishment is to stay in this chair, strapped in, until you memorize that chapter. He said, that. That felt horrible. How, how, how can you tell people a God loves them when, he would, when, when someone would use their words, use God's word to do that? I said, simple. I tell people not to do things like that because you see, memorizing verses of scripture is wonderful intellectually. Memorizing verses of scripture will nourish your soul, but only if you are connected to the author. Only if you abide in Jesus. Because, friends, Jesus is actually confronting people who were treating the religious traditions, were treating the Old Testament law, treating the Ten Commandments, treating all the Torah, all the Pentateuch, all of, all of the wisdom literature, all of that, as like the thing, and he says, look, you have to abide in my word, because what they're answering him is they're saying, we're offspring of Abraham. We've never been enslaved by anyone. I think that is one of the most hilarious passages in all of scripture. Jewish people in the first century, occupied by Rome, with Roman soldiers setting everywhere in the city of Jerusalem, particularly during one of the festivals when they increased the number of soldiers they had there because they had the zealots and the people who wanted to overthrow Rome. And so Rome sent more troops in during these festivals, during the first century. And yet these people are looking at Jesus and saying, how can you say, we've never been enslaved by anyone. It's like Jesus is going, really? Look over there at that Roman soldier. Or, or let's, let's talk about this. The very thing you're celebrating, the feast of the booze, the feast of the tabernacles, is because you were set free from Egyptian bondage. Oh, and let's not talk about the fact that between Egypt and today, your cities have been occupied and you have been literally taken out of your country for decades to Babylon when your nation was overthrown. You've been enslaved the whole time. And yet you have the audacity to say, we're we're not slaves to anyone. How can you tell us that we will become free? We're already free. Jesus says, no, you're not. And it's not just because you've been pillaged and oppressed that you're not free. You're not free because freedom isn't about national freedom. Freedom is about personal freedom. You can't have national freedom, authentic national freedom until individuals have individual personal freedom. And individual personal freedom is based upon a relationship with the creator of the universe who knows you and invites you to live in connection, to abide with him, to stay connected with him. Because you see, abiding Jesus shows us the truth and it shows us who we are. It shows us ourselves. And knowing who we are and knowing who God is and knowing who Jesus is is what really sets us free. And so Jesus looks at these people and he says something really, really interesting. He says, truly, truly, which is a way of saying, man, this is really the truth. I say to you, Whoever anyone is who practices sin is a slave to sin. The, the slave does not remain in the house forever. The son remains forever. Now, when I read that verse, there's some of you going, what does he mean practice sin? Are there people who like sit around and they practice lust? <laughs> or is he talking about people who just sit around and they, and they practice lying? are there people who just sit around and, you know, if they're really practicing at it, they're going to get better. No, that's not what he's talking about. In order to understand what he's talking about, you have to understand this word sin and what sin really is. So for some of you, you've been living under some very, very painful false guilt and undue shame because you don't understand the word sin. Because you've tried really hard to be good. You've tried really hard to, to, to follow the rules. And, and I hear it all the time. I hear people say to me, well, pastor, nobody's perfect. Only Jesus was perfect. I've said that. You're right. Jesus is the only one who was perfect. But being sinless is not the same as being perfect. Being sinless is about your heart and your actions follow your heart. So it's not about whether or not you have done something wrong. It's about whether you did something wrong knowingly. See, that word harmatia, which is translated sin, and which has as its core meaning missing the mark, in the context of the synoptic gospels and the gospel of John and most of the New Testament ways Paul uses it, has not just simply this thing of, oops, I messed up, ooh, I made a mistake. No, it has intent involved in it. So you need to understand, in my understanding of Scripture, sin is not what happens when you mess up. Sin is what happens when God's Spirit says to you, you just messed up, and you go, I don't care. I just keep doing what I want to do. So it's not about you and I trying to live perfection. It's about you and I trying to live abiding, abiding in Christ, because here's what happens. Jesus said, if you abide in my, in my word, in me, in my experience, then I'm gonna set you free because that's the truth that sets you free. It doesn't mean you have to be perfect. This doesn't mean you can control everything. No, no, what it, what it means is you live in this relationship and when you realize that you have grieved the heart of God, for, for those of you who are married or those of you who are in long-term relationships, do you remember the first time you... Um, actually did something unknowingly that hurt the other person's feelings? I mean, you hurt them. You didn't know it hurt them because they didn't tell you, but they just kept harboring it for a while. And then when they told you, you had a choice to make, right? It's like, will you, will, will you forgive me? When my boys were little, and they get into a fight, and one of them would do something to the other one, we, we always look at them and say, say you're sorry. Did you ever say that to a kid? We'd get words like this, sorry. They weren't sorry. But what we learned to say was, tell your brother why you're sorry. Well, I don't know. I right, tell your brother what he did that made you upset so, so he can say he's sorry. and So we, it became a thing where I am sorry for this. I'm sorry for that. When I'm talking about sin, when Jesus is talking about sin in this passage, he's not talking about you sinning by making a, a mistake that you didn't know was a mistake. But what he is talking about is the moment the Holy Spirit, and my friends, even if you're not a follower of Jesus, the Spirit of God is within you. Paul talks about this in Romans. Even if people have never heard of Jesus, there is the Spirit of God in them that will convict them of their sin. Most people call it a conscience. Now, I realize there are some people who are so sick they have no conscience. I also realize that number is growing in the world in which we live. But I also know that light always wins over darkness, and the Spirit of God somewhere, even in the rebellious heart, is still there. And the Spirit of God will nudge that heart and that heart has a choice at that moment in time. Do I sin in rebellion? And say, God, I don't care what you say. I don't care what Jesus said. I don't don't care at all. I'm gonna do what I wanna do. That's called sin. But I also know that when the Spirit of God convicts you, you can step into it and say, you know what? God, I didn't realize that. I am so, so sorry, please. Help me become a better person. Help me become free from that. Forgive me and set me on another path. Because here's what I know. That phrase, the truth, you'll know the truth, and the truth will set you free. Out of context, it's all about intellect. But in context, it's all about relationship. And when Jesus says, look, I just want you to know, everybody who practices willful disobedience to God is a slave to that disobedience. But I need you to know, the slave doesn't remain forever in a house. See, the slavery in the first century was a slavery that you could work your way out of. But if the son, who is the head of the house after the father who has all the authority that the Father has given to him, says to the slave, you're free, then you are free indeed. Because here's the deal, when you know the truth about about yourself and the truth about Jesus, then it literally sets you free to live with a changed heart. Here's that second story I told you, some of you heard me tell before. I, I learned it from one of my professors in my doctoral program at Emory University many years ago. The professor's name was Fred Craddock. I always had an affinity for Dr. Craddock because he was from East Tennessee and I was serving in East Tennessee at the time that I met him. And Dr. Craddock, um, as they used to say, he, he, could make, he, he, he could make the consequences of sin look like sitting in a room with a 10-watt light bulb and nothing else but a chair, and you're all alone, and the shadows are coming over you. Dr. Craddock was an amazing storyteller. And one day, he said to us in class, he said, let me, let, me, let me tell you a story. He said, when I was a young preacher in the early 1950s, Dr. Craddock's been with the Lord now for years. He said, "Um, my wife and I, our our church was growing, things were doing well, but we're up in East Tennessee, and I just was tired. So we went on a vacation. We we couldn't afford to go much of anywhere, but there was this little inn that we knew up up around Newport, Tennessee. So we, we booked a reservation there in the middle of the week, and we thought nobody else would be there. And I just, we went up there to rest. I, I really didn't want to see anybody. I surely didn't want to see anybody from my church. I just wanted to rest. And he said, the first night, the first night, we, we go down for dinner at this little inn. And, and, and as we're sitting there at the table, um, <laughs> this, uh, that we noticed this elderly gentleman in his 80s who was walking table to table and greeting everybody. And just carrying a little conversation. We thought maybe he was the owner, you know, lived nearby. We, we didn't know. But he pulled up next to our table, and he looked at me and said, uh, hey, what's your name? Said, well, my name's Fred. <laughs> he wasn't about to tell him he was a preacher. Well, Fred, what do you do? He goes, I couldn't lie. Well, I'm a pastor. Oh, you're a pastor. Hey, and he pulls up a chair, uninvited. Sits down next to Dr. Craddock and says, hey, let me, I got a preacher story for you. Now, friends, let me tell you something. If you ever meet a pastor when they're away from their congregation or even when they're here, I'm just telling you, if you have a preacher joke or a preacher story, keep it to yourself. We've all heard them. Every pastor has heard them. The ones who haven't, the rest of us will tell them. Just let let me just tell you, all right? And so he's like, oh, man, I got to listen to this old guy that I don't know. Tell me a preacher story. He said, okay. He said, I was born up here in these mountains. It's in a little town. called the name of it. It's actually, the name's changed today. He was born in 1870, this man who was talking. Today, the city's known as Jefferson City, Tennessee. And so when I was born, I was born to a young girl who had fallen in love with a man of quite a bit of prominence in our little town. His dad was the doctor. And the um, problem was he was engaged to another lady of prominence from another prominent family. And they were to be married and the whole town knew it. But he had an affair with my mom. And when, when it became apparent that she was pregnant... He then very quickly married his fiance and moved out of town. Left my mom to fend for herself. Said she took in ironing, she, she cleaned people's houses. But it was a small town, Reverend. And everybody in the town was trying to figure out who was the father of that child my mom had? Who was my father? He said, in all of my life as a young boy, Every time when my mother and I would walk down the street, you could just see people whispering. He said, and, and I, I grew up with such a, a sense of shame that, 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 that I, I didn't have a dad. My, my, my mom wasn't married to the man she conceived a child by. And everybody in the town knew it, and everywhere I went, you know, I, he said, I just, I just pulled back from people because shame and guilt are horrible things, reverend. But then one day when I was about 11, 12 years old, he said, sometime around 1880, 1885, we were having a revival at the little church at the edge of town. He said, now, you know, we didn't have TV, we didn't have radio, we didn't have electricity much. So when somebody came to hold a revival, it was a a civic event. Everybody showed up. And everybody was talking about this preacher and and how dynamic he was and how how entertaining he was and what a great orator he was. And he said, I just my curiosity got me. He said, I usually stayed out of places where people, where people would make me feel ashamed. And church was one of those places. But I heard so much about this guy that I I I went and I slid into the to the back of the church building after the service had started. It was standing room only, but I but I managed to find a little a little stool over in the corner in the back. And I and I sat there and I listened, and this man was everything they advertised. He was amazing. I'd never heard anyone who could, who could speak that way, and people would listen to him, and, and he just he was just amazing. And I just sat there in awe. So much so that I, I, normally I would slip out before it was over, but he was so good that I, I, I just was enthralled with him. And so I, I, I sat there and then suddenly realized the service was over and people were leaving and they'd queued up in all the aisles and there was no way for me to get out quickly. And as people stood from their pews and they turned to leave and, and they queued up in the aisles, I knew they were seeing me and I could feel the, I could feel the darts from their eyes and the question again who is that boy's daddy? And I'm trying to get out because I just am feeling overwhelmed. And and, and then as I'm leaving, suddenly I feel a hand on my shoulder. And I turn around and there was that preacher. And and he looked at me. And he said, "Uh, what's your name, boy? I said, Ben. He said, well, Ben. Ben. I've been looking at you while I've been talking. And Ben, I just have to tell you, I know your daddy. He said, what? Nobody knows my daddy. I don't even know my daddy. He goes, oh, no, no, Ben. I know your daddy. But this time, he said, people had stopped talking and were queued up, and they weren't leaving. They're all wanting to know, who is Ben's daddy? (laughs) And the preacher says, Ben, I know your daddy. You are the child of God. He is your father. And Ben, he loves you. And Ben kind of rocked back on the chair in the mountain end and looked at Dr. Craddock and said, Fred, you need to know, that changed my life. No longer did I wander around about knowing who I was, but for the rest of my life, I knew I was a child of God and I was loved. And it didn't matter who my earthly father was, my heavenly father loved me and I learned that that was enough. Dr. Craddock said, the man leaned over and said, thanks for letting me interrupt your dinner. See you later. And walked off. The waiter came at that point to bring the check for the end of the meal. Dr. Craddock said, I I looked at him. I said, hey, that that man, Ben, said, "Do, do do you know him? Does he work here? He goes, oh, no, sir. He, he doesn't work here, but he just lives down the road. But he just loves people, and he comes down, and he just talks and visits with everybody all the time. And everybody seems to love him. He's really not a nuisance at all. He goes, no, I, but he just told me the most wonderful story. Could, could, do you tell, What's his last name? He said, oh, you didn't recognize him. That's Ben Hooper. Ben Hooper. Dr. Craddock said, I, I remembered when I was growing up in East Tennessee. Studying in the little small country elementary school where I went. Hearing our teacher talk about Ben Hooper, governor of the state of Tennessee from 1910 to 1917. Ben Hooper, the only person born out of wedlock to ever be elected governor of the state of Tennessee. Ben Hooper who became one of the most influential men in the early part of the 20th century in the state of Tennessee and in Washington, D.C., who raised his family, who lived his life to honor Jesus Christ and all he could do. Ben Hooper, who finally figured out who his daddy was. See, the truth about Jesus and the truth about you, when mixed together, will set you free to live with a changed heart. Which is why Jesus said to the people, So if the Son sets you free, you'll be free indeed. I know that you are offspring of Abraham, yet you seek to kill me because. Well, the things that I'm telling you find no place in you. Things about grace and forgiveness. Remember, these are the people who watched him forgive the woman caught in adultery. I speak of what I have seen with my father. But you do what you've heard from your father, Abraham. You're hiding in your religiosity instead of living in a relationship with a prepared heart this morning, as we, as we figure out what it means to prepare our hearts and have a changed heart that changes our life. There, there's a practice that I've used for a long time that I'd like to invite you if you're with us on campus or if you're in a place in the online community where you, where you can do this easily. I, I'm gonna invite you to, to join me this morning in just taking a moment and giving, what what I do is simply take my hands and put them out like this. <laughs> Sometimes I'll even like make a fist with them, and I visualize in my fist all the things that cause me anxiety and worry. I don't do this every day, but when stuff gets tough, <laughs> and and what I what I visualize doing is saying, you know what? going to open that up and let it go and place it at the feet of Jesus and say Jesus, here's my anxiety Jesus, here's my pain Jesus, here's my heartache right here, right now and then I just breathe out and then after a moment turn my hands over. And at that point in time, I begin to breathe in. And as I do, I pray a little breath prayer that says, Jesus, Son of David, have mercy on me. Give me what you know I need for all of the stuff in my life. And so this morning, if you're on campus, I just want to ask you, would, would you join me in doing that as our prayer today? Would you just kind of put your hands out, palms down? If you're really having a tough time, just make a fist with it. And then just take a moment and Exhale. let all of that stuff go. And now would you take a moment and turn your hands over and inhale and receive God's grace, His love, His mercy, His forgiveness, His presence in your life. on campus, would you stand with us and sing these words?
1: In the high- A mighty river flowing upward from a deep but empty. Ooh. I will praise you on the mountain. I will praise you in the mountains in my way. You're the will and my feet. Up. So I will praise you in the
0: pray with me. Heavenly Father, thank you. Thank you that you are the one who sent your son to show us how much you love us. And that no matter what's been done to us or what we've done, you find healing for us through what Jesus did on the cross. And that Jesus would step into the Feast of the Tabernacles and say to a people who so steeped in their own tradition that they were missing the very presence of God and ask them to abide in him. If they really believe, not to just believe intellectually, but to be connected to him and through him to you. May that be true of us. Prepare our hearts In these days, when the world is in turmoil, to be people who live connected to you. It's in the strong name of Jesus Christ that we pray. Amen.